NPR has a new way for curious kids and grown-ups to connect, look up, and discover the wonders in the world around them. Wow in the World with Mindy and Guy is a new podcast where kids and their families can tap into the crazy cool things that are happening all around us every day. Find and share Wow in the World on the NPR One app and wherever you listen to podcasts. Welcome to Pop Culture Happy Hour, NPR's roundtable podcast about what we are watching and reading and listening to. I'm Linda Holmes. I'm the editor of NPR's pop culture and entertainment blog, Monkey See. This week, we'll look at the latest Alien franchise entry, Alien Covenant, and we'll check back in with one of our favorite comedies, HBO's Veep. And as always, we'll close the show with what's making us happy this week. But before we get started here in Historic Studio 44, we're going to go around the table. I'm Stephen Thompson with NPR Music. I will candidly say we had a little bit of a scheduling snafu, so there's only three of us here. But if you're only going to have three people, you want the other man to be of high... The, the eminently available. High <laughs> quality and eminent availability, Chris Klemek. Chris, uh, what do you do when you're not I am the PCHH resident xenobiologist. I am an editor at <laughs> Smithsonian Air and Space Magazine, the July issue of which, which I am holding up to the microphone so listeners can see it right now, yeah. has a story written by me about flying around in 80-year-old bombers flown by 20-year-old humans. Nice. So uh, way back in 1970, Director Ridley Scott directed Alien from a screenplay by Dan O'Bannon. It was followed by Aliens, Alien Cubed or Alien 3 or whatever (laughs) we're calling it, and Alien Resurrection. Then in 2012, a prequel series kicked off with Prometheus, also directed by Ridley Scott, but scripted by new writers. That prequel series continues with Alien Covenant, where Scott teams up with yet more writers, plus a cast that includes Michael Fassbender, Catherine Waterston, Billy Crudup, and Danny McBride. So I could go to Chris first, at which point we would spend... Eight to 12 hours in the weeds talking about the Alien series. Your iPod has a big hard drive. I, I know. See what's, what's wrong with that. Before we do that, I want to go to Stephen Thompson. Now, Stephen, you did not see Prometheus. Is that correct? I did not, which turned out to be kind of a big deal. Yeah. Okay. So, he, so we are at three different levels, I would say, of having plunged into this series. Chris is your nearly completist. I am your have completist. I am your have seen some. So I saw Prometheus. I liked it better than a lot of people did. I would say the the reviews on Prometheus were so-so. But a lot of people are going to come to this just like Stephen is. They're going to be curious about what it means if you're not an alien person. So as a standalone movie... I can see being confused. How did it strike you, Thompson? Well, I mean, to clarify my past with these movies, I have seen Alien, I've seen Aliens, and I've seen Alien Cubed, at which point I was done seeing Alien movies because gotcha. I did not like Alien Cubed. I hate math. Actually, it turned, me off, it turned me yeah. off math entirely. Yeah. Um, so I went into this, I see the title Alien Covenant, I think this is going to be an alien movie, and about 45 minutes in, it turns into a Prometheus movie. And it's it's clearer that you're that what you're getting here is a prequel with a lot of the kind of prequel mumbo jumbo and history of of why there are beasties. Here's how much prequel I need. There are beasties. Yeah. There are beasties. I don't care how the beasties got there. I don't need Michael Fassbender droning on about man and whatever. Uh, Right. Let me take a step back. Please do. Where you are, it's very hard to explain where this story starts and ends. But suffice it to say, alien movies have a basic structure. Would you agree, Chris? Yes, it's uh, confined in a futuristic sort of industrial space. Right. You have a vessel, you have a crew, 
you have a crew that winds up in peril, and then they are all gradually... Systematically dispatched. They're systematically dispatched in various gruesome ways until only one or two remain. That is generally how these movies go. So in this one, you start out with a crew that is under the guidance of James Franco, who is not really in the movie. There is a, you know, disaster that ends his participation in the movie. (laughs) You have this crew that is led up by Catherine Waterston as the kind of plucky. I'm going to say plucky because I think that's the lever the movie is pulling. Sure, right. And and Billy Crudup is the second in command. And Billy Crudup over. is the second in command. And so the two of them are sort of in charge. And so you also have your kind of ragtag band of actors of varying levels of fame who will die at various times during the movie. But it does really stick, I think, to that piece. Now, where this fits together with Prometheus is mostly, I would say, in the person of this Michael Fassbender android. Am I, is that the correct yep. word? Or, yeah. I don't think they call them synthetics in the, the alien universe, sy- but they're androids. They are... Uh, uh, artificial person. Right. Uh, one of them, uh, Bishop from Aliens, is the like that's the preferred term. He right. corrects people when they say synthetic. Right. So yeah. So they are androids, and he was in Prometheus with Numi Rapace, and he is back in this one. She is not, and he is interacting with all of these people. As you can hear me try to explain this, it's hard to explain the plot. Correct. That yeah, that's true. So. As you know, the the first two films in this franchise, Alien and Aliens, are sacred texts to me. Yes, um, I know. And every time I write about any one of these multi-generational film franchises, I find myself returning to this metaphor of an aging rock band where the set list is increasingly constricted by the expectation that you're going to play the hits. Right. If they're not total hacks, they want to introduce a few new songs into the set. Sometimes they're going to play those songs on the recorder and they'll tell you, I'll handle the fingering. Yeah. Oh, yeah. This yeah. is where this this movie uh, gets some new songs into the set list. And this is the only thing that I think Ridley Scott is really interested in is this, to me, fascinating relationship between David, the original synthetic who yes. has free will from Prometheus, who are reintroduced to in the first scene of Covenant, mm-hmm. a really great kind of Kubrickian scene between him and uh, Guy Pierce, who yes. plays mm-hmm. Peter Wayland, his, Very his creator. Very Kubrickian, I feel. Yeah. You started to say the relationship between David and, I think, you were going to say the David new, and, uh, yes, the, new the, android. the new android Walter, also played by Michael Fassbender, who is basically a slave. I mean, we're told he cannot think for himself. Right. That the the scene that I alluded to with the recorder kind of illustrates this cleverly, I think, where he can mimic another musician and play a song, but he cannot compose a song like like David can. Mm-hmm. And this is really what the grand themes that were present only in subtext in Alien and in the prior films up till Prometheus about. You know, what responsibilities a creator owes its creation and the origins of life and stuff. And we're probably better left as subtext. The only place where it's expressed well, I think, is in these scenes between Walter and David, which have as much to do with Blade Runner, Ridley Scott's other big sci-fi movie, as they do... With Alien, I think you can tell that Scott is really only interested in this part of the movie. Yeah. The only interesting relationship in this movie, right. even though the entire crew of this vessel are couples. Right. You know, intending to settle this, uh, you know, unharvested uh, planet. Right. Uh, is between Walter and David, the android who can think yeah. for himself and the one who can't. And I, th- and I think it's also fair to point out there is also a big fight between Walter and David. Yeah, that was awesome. Which is super groundbreaking, <laughs> assuming that you've never seen Orphan Black. Uh, or in Terminator which, 2. In which they do that all the time. Uh, go ahead, Thompson. Yeah, boy, I had almost the inverse of your reaction to this movie, Chris. As soon as it got to talky talk talk, and I'm going to show you how to play the recorder, it gets so far away 
from what is interesting and cool about Alien and Aliens, which are it very contained. First of all, this is this is already on, on a massively different budgetary scale. So you lose a lot of that kind of grubby industrial quality mm-hmm. to those early movies. Michael Fassbender as David in particular, I just found so silly. Mm. I just got more and more and more bored as I waited for this movie to kind of get back to being more contained and exciting. It's strange that Ridley Scott stayed away from the series almost his entire career because Alien was, I think, his second feature. And, you know, over the years, as these movies continued, he would occasionally express some frustration that they were, in his view, basically just just repeating the formula that right. he established with minor tweaks. And he always said, like, why don't we go back to the, the space jockey, this third species who appears briefly in Alien as a corpse and is never addressed again until Prometheus. Mm-hmm. You know, so I think this is Scott's way of trying to keep himself interested as he wants sure. to make this series kind of retcon it into more of a 2001 style, you know, investigation of the origins of life. And yeah. so, and it, it is an awkward marriage. But yeah. It, it kind of has that thing of like, I don't need to know how Mike Wazowski and Sully came to join the Monsters, Inc. No, and <laughs> I, know? I get that. And I think for me, here was the thing about this movie is I can get into it if it's confined space beastie, right? Although I will say once I've seen a particular kind of gruesome end for a person, it's hard for me to want to watch it over and over again as opposed to just find it kind of brutal and awful to watch. Because, I mean, this is why if you think back to the original Alien and the chestburster and all that stuff, why people find that so scary is that they had never seen it before. And the parasitic idea is incredibly powerful to people. Anytime you're talking about parasites, worms, things that are crawling around inside you, it's very creepy. And I think the original movies were very good at at getting at that as a kind of new thing. So you don't necessarily have the novelty of the scare, nor the novelty of the kind of grabbing onto your face, all that stuff scare. So I do think that it makes sense for Ridley Scott to say it needs an idea, right? And and I think most sci-fi needs an idea. And as I said before, I was one of the people who liked Prometheus more than most. I think that was partly because it was partly a Damon Lindelof script. And I tend to be much more tolerant than other people are (laughs) of his constant efforts to kind of get his arms around some kind of idea about humanity and people. And I think that although he constantly gets himself into the weeds, he's never made something that didn't have an idea. Yeah, That's that's true even of the stuff that's considered failed, like Tomorrowland and things like that. mm -hmm. And Prometheus, too. And I felt like this movie needed an idea. I felt like it was a long movie of gruesome stuff in search of some kind of idea. I think the the idea of space travel as this blue collar or even like kind of underclass profession was totally new in 1979. Oh, absolutely. The relationship among this crew, the fact that it wasn't the Star Trek optimistic future, that it was a dirty spaceship, that this was clearly not, you know, what they, these people grew up wanting to do with their lives, right. being astronauts aboard this space freighter. Um, I thought that was totally radical. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and uh, I think I'm more saying it doesn't have the... a new idea right. rather yeah, than right. any. Right, idea. right, right. Yeah. Um, somebody, I think it was Bilga Abiri, I hope I'm saying his name right, mm-hmm. the, the great so. critic for The Village Voice, uh, pointed out that this movie feels like Ridley Scott, like revisiting his last like five years worth of movies and it, like where he did a Bible epic that was poorly received and, and he did uh, another movie with Michael Fassbender called The Counselor and so, sort of reworking elements of all those into the the sort of, you know, wrapper of, a, of an alien movie. The dude, is, you know, he's going to turn 80 this year and he's made five movies in five years. So mm-hmm. I don't know if he yeah. has this like burst of, of energy like sure. I, I got all this stuff I got to do um, 
but I, I kind of wish he would step back from from this. I'm glad he's not making the the Blade Runner follow up that's coming out later yeah, this year. Yeah, it's funny. One of those weird things, and we'll talk about this. So Glenn Weldon is away in Australia, which is one of the reasons why we are not talking about Twin Peaks this week. But one of the things that conversations about Twin Peaks have reignited is this idea of kind of idiosyncratic visionary filmmakers and the difference between, you know, them being free to make their thing and and you being free to be interested in it or not. And I feel like when you watch this, you do see someone's passion for these stories and these aliens and this mythology, I do think that he cares about it. And I do think that he likes kind of digging into all these pieces. I think that he has a great interest in the connection between these stories. I personally don't as much. I think they are most successful, as you guys have both said, when they are confined space um, you know, something's in here with us. Movies, not not unlike monster movies that mm-hmm. take place in old houses in yeah. the middle of the in the middle of the of a farm. You know, but I think for me, I felt like it needed something else, and I couldn't quite figure out what it was. Here's a big difference for me: when you keep it to a contained space, the way those first two movies, especially the first one, really yeah. is very very contained, you have so much more room to do a certain amount of character development, so that you're invested in you know who lives, who dies. This, because there's so much of that exposition in the middle, you're really not given an opportunity yeah. to get to really know even the main character, yeah. the way you feel intensely invested in Sigourney Weaver. Yeah, this is very much a pets or meat movie. We've talked before about the <laughs> Michael Moore and Roger and me going by the woman who has a stand that says rabbits or bunnies, pets or meat. Yeah. Um, and I always think of the people in a movie like this as pets or meat. You have your people who are going to live to the end, who you are supposed to be invested in, and those are the pets. And then you have <laughs> your people who are just there to get killed. Yeah. This is originally, by the way, a theory that I developed around the movie Anaconda. Um, <laughs> Jennifer Lopez, who's a pet. And I think you do get that feeling of like a certain number of people who are just there to get killed. And I think that was easier in the around the first alien not to notice that construct. But now you see it and you're like, hmm, if I list these people in descending order of fame, will that be the order (laughs) in which they will die? Mm, Well, not quite. Like with maybe the Janet Lee exception, like you know what I mean. Well, the Janet Lee exception is very apt here because Ripley does not even emerge as the protagonist of Alien until like halfway right. through. You know, she is not part of the away team that goes off to investigate the mm-hmm. the derelict. She's back on the ship with Ash. I think that what's missing here is that human relationship. Again, I think the android relationship is the only one that Ridley Scott's interested in. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. I know that a lot of you will wind up seeing Alien Covenant, or you have opinions about why you're choosing to decline. Come and find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash PCHH or tweet us at PCHH and tell us what you think about these movies. And when we come back, we are going to switch gears. It is that time again. They have brought back Veep for another season, and we will be talking about it after this. Support for Pop Culture Happy Hour and the following message come from HelloFresh, the meal kit delivery service that makes cooking fun, easy, and convenient. They source the freshest ingredients measured to the exact quantities needed, along with step-by-step recipes for delicious meals designed to take 30 minutes to make. Everything is delivered in a special insulated box with free shipping, and meals are now less than $10 each. 
Pop Culture Happy Hour listeners can receive $30 off their first week of deliveries. Just visit HelloFresh.com and enter promo code HAPPYHOUR30 on your first purchase. Thanks for listening to Pop Culture Happy Hour. Have you heard Up First, the morning news podcast from NPR? Clear and concise. It's a quick update on the news you need to start the day. Wake up with Up First tomorrow morning by 6 o'clock Eastern Time on the NPR One app and wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to Pop Culture Happy Hour. When Veep began in 2012, Selena Meyer, played by Julia Louis-Dreyfus, was a frustrated vice president waiting for the phone to ring. Since then, the show has won a boatload of Emmys, and it's safe to say Selena has been through a lot all the way up the chain of power and then out the door of the White House. The show's sixth season, which premiered a few weeks ago, finds Selena coping with life after public office, so we thought we'd check in with this band of weirdos and see how everybody is doing. Now, this is the start of the sixth season, I'm pretty sure I've seen all of it. Where do you guys come down on how much Veep have you watched? Okay, so I I have seen a double-digit number of episodes, certainly. Of season six, I have only seen the premiere so far. Nice. How about you, Thompson? Yeah, I watched it. I watched a bunch of the episodes right in the beginning. Then I become much more sporadic. And then, though I love it, and then to prepare for this show, I started about two-thirds of the way through season five and watched it through the one that has most recently aired. It's one of those shows where I would say having missed pieces of it is not, it's not a show where I feel like, oh my gosh, you just have no idea unless you've seen every single episode. It is serialized and it does have continuing storylines. But for the most part, I'm going to pause it. That as brilliant as it is, and it is very brilliant, this show is mostly a joke factory. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's it's a workplace comedy. Yeah. If you find the fact that we're in six seasons, and of course these are 10 episode seasons, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. but if you are relatively new to this show, you can start really with the next to last episode of the fifth season, which has the conceit of Selena Meyer's daughter making a documentary. Mm-hmm. And first of all, that is a brilliantly constructed episode. There are so many jokes. It's weaving together so many little stories that you're just getting abbreviated. Mm-hmm. But you you can start there and pretty much get a summation of what yeah. has happened before. Yeah, and I think it's I think it's very popular with kind of highly respected, highly produced pieces to feel like you have to go back to the beginning and watch the whole thing. It's very rewarding if you choose yes. to do that. If you've gotten behind just jump in. I, I think if you're familiar with any of the other Armando Iannucci political shows uh, in the thick of it or or the movie version in the loop from, I think, 2009, which also had Anna Klumsky playing a very, very similar role. Yeah. Veep will feel very, very familiar yeah. and accessible to yeah. you. Yeah. I think Veep is a relative of in the loop in the same way that the West Wing was sort of a relative of the American president mm-hmm. in that it's kind of like it has a slightly different tone uh, in some ways, but for the most part, it's the same thing. You know, one of the things that I find so delightful about Veep is that they have done such a remarkable job. Iannucci left that show at the end of the fourth season, and they had to kind of start again. And I think there was a lot of talk. I mean, he is a legit, like, comedy auteur kind of dude. Yeah, it's very recognizable. With a very specific style associated with him. People will say it's the swearing, but it's not just the swearing. It's the kind of it's it's everything. And it's the speed of it and the pace of it. It is the not just the swearing, but the use of swearing and insults is a very specific stylistic thing. And I think there were a lot of people who very, very reasonably worried about what would happen to this show 
after he he ceased kind of being directly involved in it. I they've done great. I, I think they've done great. I completely agree. And I, I do think, like you said, with the swearing, there's more to it than just the swearing. Of it's course. the way the way profanity is woven into these complex insults. It's very musically done. Yeah. It, it, in right. a way, like I would almost liken it, and I know you you're not as big a fan of this show, Linda, but I would liken it a little bit to Archer in the way that it's such a barrage of transgression I can see that becomes yeah. strangely soothing and I think that this is a show that is probably I would I would argue this show is more rewatchable than most shows in part because the dialogue is coming at you so quickly and there's so many things that your brain is trying to file away as yeah. oh I, I just want to save that yeah, yeah. His, his Girl Friday is one of my favorite movies and this is the, the same density of the dialogue where you, you know you can sort of savor this joke and savor that joke right, right. next to it the next time also on the, the profanity it's uh, it's never in the absence of another word here. Like they're still right. saying something incredibly specific right. and hurtful. You know, it's right. just to like add another another syllable yeah. to make it more more musical. Yeah. Uh, it's it's never fumbling for a word. When yeah, and I think one of the things that I also think is interesting about it is that you know obviously everybody right now is watching so much politics go yeah. by in the real world, and I think I think it was Audie who talked a little while ago about not being sure that she could watch Veep at this point mm-hmm. because it was so like You're so barraged all uh, there's day there's just every been day. so much politics I don't know if I really will want to go back to it I have been surprised by the same thing is that I still find this completely entertaining and even though it is the bleakest <laughs> darkest vision of politics in which no one is good no one is yeah. good there are no people who care anything about policy at all Everybody is a bottom feeder. And somehow I still find it entertaining, despite the fact that it is so, so bleak. Right. Well, it's it's the anti-West Wing in that way. <laughs> really where the West is. Wing suggests that people do, you know, whatever happens to them, they do go into politics for, for altruistic reasons. And it, it's weird that Veep has kind of become my escapism now, because all during 2016, I was rewatching the the uh, Sorkin years of the West Wing. Right. And, I, and I know you're not a, a huge sure. fan of that, but it, certain, it, certain it, it had a sort of comfort food appeal mm-hmm. to yeah, me. Sure. And now uh, Veep, although the perspective is totally different, yeah. totally cynical, yeah. there, there is an element of uh, well, this too shall pass. It's possible you know, to like, have more than one vision that's meaningful yeah. to you. I find it strangely hopeful in this weird way that the government is just presented as just a clot of people. Yeah, like that's any true. like any workplace. Yeah. You know, I, I come back again and again. This is a workplace comedy, but like. It has a way of demystifying the office and demystifying what it must be like to be in the office. That, like, the government is a government of human beings like any other workplace has this weird, I don't know, it makes government strangely relatable in a way. I understand what's going on here. I mean, I think it it makes the foibles of people who work in government more similar to the foibles of other people, which in some ways is terrifying and in some ways is, is, like you said, hopeful. But to me, what I like about what they're doing with it now, what I like about this recent season is that I feel like although Selena remains the center of the show and it and has remained funny as she has been in a variety of different positions, right? She's been on top of the world. She's been scraping the bottom of the barrel. And she's funny either way, right? right? The superstars of the supporting cast in the early days that the show is on are not necessarily all the same people who get the most attention now, right? It's not that I don't still think that, like, Tony Hale is hysterically funny playing kind of her body man, Mm. which she still somehow has, even though she's not in the office anymore. It's not that I don't think that he's funny, but I think if you look at, for example, 
um, Reed Scott, who plays Dan, who mm-hmm. in this season has a, a new job. He's a talk show host. He's a talk show Stephanopoulos. With another whole set of workplace things going on, right? And they brought in Paul Shear and a bunch of other other people to be in that story. But if you look at him and if you look at, like, Timothy Simons, who plays Jonah, Ryan, Jonah to me is <laughs> is one who they have gotten a better and better handle on what is funny about that yep. guy as he ran for Congress. And now he's just now, hey, and this. And he won. Now he's a congressman. And now he's just this sniveling kind of, but also, like, eager and... <laughs> insecure but also swaggering and arrogant as much as I don't want to you know I don't want to become the person who praises a comedy by quoting jokes but there is a moment in which Jonah has been uh, has had a romantic encounter with this woman and she says to him what do you live with your mother and he says oh no she wishes (laughs) it's such a weird thing to say There's a specificity to, like, he's trying to burn his mother by saying, like, my mother wishes I lived with her. <laughs> I I don't know how to explain it, but he has become so funny to me. And, and they have started to just kind of, like, pile on with that character. Mm-hmm. And also, I would say the way that they use Kevin Dunn, who plays Ben, who's kind of the normal person to me he's the one who seems to be the most like aware of what's going on and what the moral dimensions are of various things not that he does anything about it the way that they use him to me has gotten more creative and dry and strange i feel like the use of the supporting cast has gotten more creative and not flattened which is very often what happens in comedies is that over time like on the office US office as it became like every joke about Meredith was about drinking or promiscuity these people instead they get weirder and more kind of there gets to be more depth to those comedic ideas I feel like. Well they're seizing on the opportunity to expand on these characters worlds a little bit and the show like these people are not all still together so they're right. jumping around you're getting the Anna Klumsky character is now just like a political consultant over here and Dan is a TV host over here they've built in a whole little world right. for him to be occupying and even with like Selena Meyer herself yeah. they've take they've seized the opportunity to make jokes about like what ex-presidents would do and I, you, you said you didn't want to quote jokes one of my <laughs> favorites it's this passing reference to her Skyping into a board meeting. I'm on the board of Biogensidine. What are you voting on? Of these vultures want to raise the price of some new cancer drug. Oh. I. <laughs> it just goes back to what she's doing. It's, it is, this is a very like joke dense show for people who like joke dense shows. Yeah. But there, there is as always a tremendous amount of talent. When you talk about the story with Dan and the, as a news host, the woman who plays his co-host oh on the show is so an actress named Margaret Collin. And God bless her. Look up her IMDb sometime. That woman has been around forever. And done everything. And done everything. And I'm so happy to see her in this really <laughs> funny, really cool, really weird role. It makes me so happy. And I'm going to posit another theory. And you can see what you think. Selena Meyer is... Archie Bunker. Archie Bunker being the uh, father in All in the Family. Hmm. Because I thought about this while realizing just how racist she has become. Oh, yeah. Um, Not that she wasn't always, but more aggressively racist as the show has gone on. And as she has been 
in the first few episodes of this season, she does a lot of like international travel right. and a lot of dealings with international politics and and industry people, which seems to kind of bring this out in her even more. Yeah. And the more I thought about it, the more I thought it's almost like the Archie Bunker thing where the fact that she says horrible things is both funny, but clearly the show thinks it's bad. Sure. Do you know what I mean? At the same time, I think you're supposed to feel that Archie Bunker's heart is somehow in the right place. Yes. And I don't think that's necessarily the case here. She's just a thoroughgoing monster. Yeah, I, I mean, I think with, with the show and, I mean, going back to, like, a whole generation to, like, when The Simpsons was new, there's this idea that that any kind of uh, chiding or... not It's not even correct to call it a political stance, but um, these shows cancel each other out. By the time all of the... Right. Perspectives are considered and stuff, whatever, to whatever degree we're, we're shaming Selena for her racism or, you know, encouraging viewers to laugh at it at face value. They maybe negate one another. Yeah. I'm at a disadvantage having only seen the first episode of season six, mm-hmm. but uh, I read a piece by Ingu Kang, the yes. uh, MTV critic, uh, sort of uh, investigating Selena's femininity. Yeah. Who, let me and, pause because okay. I also want to say Ingu Kang is the one who Gene Demby last week talked about. Master of None being a show, like a Woody Allen show with people Woody Allen would never have on. Oh, yeah. And we couldn't remember exactly who had said that on Twitter. It was in Kukang. And King. I just wanted to give that acknowledgement. Go All ahead, All right. So, so credit where due. You know, but she pointed out that Selena is, is uh, you know, someone who only identifies as a feminist or even even a woman, like when there's political oh, yeah. advantage to be, to be gleaned from it. So that brings us back to Ripley, I think, a character who was originally oh. written as a man and, uh, you know, became iconic when she became a, a woman, given all of the, you know, the action movie responsibilities traditionally mm-hmm. assigned to a male character. So maybe maybe what works in action suspense also works in comedy. How did oh, we wind up linking Veep and Alien? Well, I did it. I've also always seen a parallel between Veep and Silicon Valley in the yeah. sense that they both, it, it seems like they worked themselves into a corner mm-hmm. where it's impossible to figure out how they're going to keep the story going because the guy and this is even more true on Silicon Valley those guys they gain everything and then they lose everything and they gain everything and then they lose everything and Selena has had largely the same trajectory where everything starts to kind of she gets what she wants or some of what she wants and then she gets knocked down and both of those shows there is a genius in the pacing of the stories where they let the success or the failure last just long enough before it feels like nothing's happening Mm -hmm. and then it starts to switch direction and both of those shows I think you can plot out and say just when it has seemed like where else can they possibly go with this they come up with some other way and I don't know if Veep can do it forever if you think about her trajectory so far right I'm not sure where else there is to go, but I've said that before, so who knows? Well, and there's this marvelous fake-out at the end of season five where it feels like you're actually going to be able to start this story over again. Yeah. And then, of course, they manage to pull that rug out from under you again. I I have faith in wherever they're taking me. Yeah. Well, again, I know that a lot of you watch Veep. Come and find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash PCHH or tweet us at PCHH. Tell us what you think of Veep or what you think of Silicon Valley or what you think (laughs) of uh, the parallels between Selena Meyer and Ripley. We will come right back with our favorite segment of this week and every week, What is Making Us Happy This Week. So come right back. 
we'd like to say a quick thank you and share a message from one of our sponsors, AT&T's Audience Network, and their new original series, Fearless with Tim Ferriss. Ferris is an author, entrepreneur, and fellow podcaster who has spent his life asking questions and scouring the globe for answers. Now he'll sit down with world-class performers to dissect strategies they use to succeed. Premieres Tuesday, May 30th on Audience. Watch it on DirecTV, Uverse, or stream on DirecTV now. Welcome back to Pop Culture Happy Hour. Um, Before we get on to our favorite segment, what is making us happy this week, we did want to take a moment to recognize the death of Roger Moore. And Chris Klimek, in addition to being our alien guy, is also our James Bond guy. So we thought it would be appropriate uh, to have Chris take a a second and remember him. Yeah, so Roger Moore prefigures this current era of the franchise is bigger than the star kind of filmmaking that we're in in a huge way. Because Bond is the first global franchise to undergo a face change. You know, they, they wanted to get him initially when they were starting up these movies in the 60s, he was busy with TV. He ends up in this role when he's already 45 years old, older than Sean Connery was, and that changes the character because now they have this guy who is naturally elegant and refined, really good at light comedy, does not have the same physicality and athleticism that Connery had. So this the series becomes more comedic, more lighthearted, uh, more kind of family-oriented as a result. So he does seven movies over 12 years, but really he defines the character for even longer than that because that sort of self-parody element sticks around Mm -hmm. for about 30 years until Daniel Craig shows up in 2006. And that's sort of where you get the image of Bond that comes up in stuff like the Austin Powers movies and stuff like that. Exactly, yeah. Like I think most of the the specific references in Austin Powers are to the the first cycle, but uh, tonally they're they're riffing on the Roger Moore years much more. Do you have one that you would recommend that people watch to Uh, see him at his best? I think the defining one is The Spy Who Loves me it was his third that's the one where he well not really he skis off the cliff and <laughs> pops the union jack parachute you know that's that's sort of the the greatest hits reel of uh the bonds that had come before and where he really seems comfortable in the role finally so the spy who loved me is the one i'd recommend thank you very much chris Klinick. okay it is time for our favorite segment what is making us happy this week stephen thompson why don't you kick us off well first of all i want to put out a reminder that we still have a few tickets left for our live show in los angeles at Largo at the Coronet on June 15th. Our special uh, fourth chair will be Shireen Marisol Miraji from Code Switch. And uh, tickets for that show are available at nprpresents.org. And also, I think I've talked before on this show about my love of Cake Rex, the blog turned book in which they take uh, uh, commercially made birthday cakes or event-oriented cakes that uh, turned out disastrously Mm -hmm. and give you a photo essay based on them. Uh, I have found its equivalent for copyright infringement in in a pretty hilarious Twitter feed, bootleg stuff, which is a bootleg underscore stuff. It's photos. Some of them are crowdsourced. Some of them are gathered by the host in which they take knockoffs of trademarked merchandise and give you photos of it. Sometimes it's just a matter of bad translation. Mm -hmm. Very often you get something like the Thomas the Tank Engine gun, uh, which is a like a purple handgun with just Thomas the Tank Engine on it. <laughs> um, so that's probably not authorized. Not authorized, that. probably not. Uh, I think it's worth a follow just for the jank Pikachu that comes up again and again. Various attempts to recreate Pikachu by people who are not authorized to do so. Uh, it's just very funny and weird, and just a funny thing to have pop up in your Twitter feed alongside the cute animals and the end of the world. Mm -hmm. Bootleg stuff. (laughs) 
bootleg underscore bootleg underscore stuff. Very nice. I'm going to put it in my Twitter feed right next to We Rate Dogs. Yes. I love We Rate Dogs. I do too. Thank you very much, Stephen Thompson. Chris Clemick, what is making you happy this week, my friend? Uh, Well, I hope it will also be making you happy this week because you you have lamented on this show before the fallow state of the romantic comedy. I have. uh, But it's coming back. It's coming back. Um, I direct your attention to an item published in the May 19th Washington Post. My friend Rachel Mantufel, who writes for them and is the source of most of what I know about animal sex, uh, directed my attention to this uh, story. <laughs> this took a turn. It appears under the headline, an unusual snail named Jeremy finally found oh, a mate. Now yeah. he is stuck in a love triangle. Yeah. I know I'm not telling listeners of this show anything they, they don't already know, but uh, indulge me. I'm reading from Samantha Schmidt's article. Unlike most snails, Jeremy is a lefty. His shell spirals counterclockwise and his sex organs are on the left side of his head. Most snails have their organs on the right side. Since snails mate facing each other, a lefty will never match up with a righty. So they had to go find him a, a lefty. They engaged in a worldwide search. They found him two lefties, and the two lefties left Jeremy. For each and other, right? That's that's right. Yeah. Uh, so he's he's alone. Boy, I've been there. Once again. Well, I was, well, I was just going to, I think when I saw this first story of the story, I said, did this by any chance happen at Oberlin? <laughs> I think I saw that happen a couple of um, times. <laughs> so as far as I know, Charlie Kaufman has not bought the, the screen right. rights to this, but it right. uh, seems like it's only a matter of time. I think Wes Anderson could make a wonderful stop motion mm-hmm. adaptation of, of this story. Uh, I see nothing but potential for it in the future. For and lefty and lefty and lefty. Yes. Uh, Southpaws, don't yeah. be shamed. <laughs> yeah. there, is, there is a snail yeah. out there for out you. Out there for you. All right. Thank you very much, Chris Klimek. You are welcome. That is very silly. Uh, making me happy this week in 2016. 16 at the Tribeca Film Festival, I saw a documentary called Bad Rap, and oh, yes. it is about four Asian-American rappers, one of whom is dumbfounded, one of whom is Aquafina, one of whom is Rex Dizzy, and one of whom is Lyrics, and it is such a good documentary, and it is the kind of thing that you come out of Tribeca and you say... I am concerned that nobody else is ever going to get a chance to see this, but it is so good, and I'm so glad I saw it at this film festival. There's a lot of, like, dumbfounded at um, rap battles and stuff Mm -hmm. like that. There's a tremendous amount of stuff about how being Asian American affected their various journeys in rap. He talks a lot about how at rap battles people would say, like, racist things to him, and, like, at what point do you respond? Do you not respond? I loved it, and I recently found out that on May 23rd, so it will be out by the time you hear this, it is coming to video on demand. So you should be able to find it on your various streaming platforms. Again, it is a documentary called Bad Rap, and uh, it is about Asian-American rappers. I loved it. It is exactly the kind of thing that I am so pleased when it makes it out of film festivals. So that is what is making me very, very happy this week. And that brings us to the end of our shrunken down show. Not really. You can find (laughs) all of us on Twitter. You can follow me at NPR Monkey C. You can follow Stephen at I Dislike Stephen. You can follow Chris at CT Klimek. That's C-T-K-L-I-M-E-K. You can follow our producer, Jessica Reedy, at Jessica underscore Reedy, and our producer emeritus and music director, Mike Katzif at Mike Katzif, K-A-T-Z-I-F. Mike's band, Hello Come In, provides our in and out music that you are tapping your foot to right now. So thanks to both of you for being here. Thank you. Thank you, Linda. And thanks to all of you for listening, and we will see you right back here next week.